You know, it's good to be able to have a direction in life. God has given us a purpose and a plan. We're not here by coincidence. God has placed us on this planet and he has a trajectory for each one of us. But as we navigate our way through life, um, sooner or later, we meet difficulties and trials and, 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 and all kinds of things that bombard us. And in the midst of all of these difficulties and perplexities, it is good to have an anchor for your soul, an anchor for your life. It is good to have a stability, a foundation. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the spiritual foundation that God wants to give us. And he has given a spiritual foundation in his law, in his commandments. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, at this incredible um, law of God, and I believe we're going to discover some very fresh and new things. You might think tonight, well, I'm already familiar with the law of God. I know the Ten Commandments. But I, I believe and pray that God is going to show you something fresh this evening from his word, okay? And um, it is no doubt that the Ten Commandments or the law of God is very central in this battle between good and evil. Our overall theme for this series is the War of Thrones. And we've been talking about this conflict between good and evil. And basically in every subject of scripture and, and all the prophecies that we've been discovering together, we see how this conflict is revealed, the conflict between good and evil. And again, when it comes to the law of God, there is definitely a conflict regarding the, uh, or rather the conflict between good and evil is definitely revolving around the law of God. Uh, this is actually a text taken from the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. And in chapter 12, it's actually a description in chapter 12 uh, about this battle between good and evil. And in the very last verse of that chapter, we read the following, Revelation 12 and verse 17. It says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And this is symbolic language that is used here. The dragon is none other than Satan or the devil himself, which is also identified in the very same chapter. The woman that is talking about here is also, it's very interesting in Bible prophecy, a woman is a symbol of God's people or his church, his movement. And actually, if you continue to come to this seminar, we're going to have a whole evening where we explore that together. It's a very interesting prophecy regarding God's movement in the end of time. But here in Revelation chapter 12, we have, we have the battle described between the dragon or Satan and God's people, the woman. And uh, when you think about it, Jesus presents himself over and over again as the bridegroom. And so the church uh, is the bride. And there's this incredible unity. When Jesus comes back, there's this, this consummation, this marriage that takes place between him and his people. So God's people described as the woman, but they are under the attack of the dragon. And take notice what it says in this verse. And he went to make war, the dragon make, goes out to make war, with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the battle that is described here in Revelation chapter 12 is between Satan and God's people, but is revolving around the commandments. God's people are keeping the commandments and they are under the attack of the devil and Satan. No, it's no doubt that the great controversy revolves around the law of God. And that's what we're gonna to discover together because when we talk about war of thrones, 
and we talk about this battle between good and evil, we want to be on the winning side. We want to be on the side of Christ. But in order to be on the side of Christ, we have to enter into that covenant relationship that we have been talking about. And that covenant relationship involves that God wants to write his law on your heart and in your mind so that you belong to him, that you can be identified in this world as a follower of Christ. Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 13. To start off our journey together, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Some of the verses I will have on the screen tonight, but actually this one um, I will be reading, and you can read along if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, just put up your hand, and uh, maybe, Andre, you can uh, share out some, some of those Bibles if anyone would like to follow along tonight. Matthew chapter 13, we have an interesting parable. It's called the parable of the wheat and the tares. If you were here on opening night of our series, War of Thrones, you'll remember that we actually went to that passage because it's a passage that describes this battle between good and evil. I want to revisit this parable tonight, and I want you to take notice of some interesting details in this parable regarding the battle between good and evil and the involvement of God's law. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 13, and we're first going to read the parable, which starts in verse 24 to 30, and then we'll look at the interpretation of the parable, which you can find in the very same chapter. Okay, so Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, listen to what it says. Another parable he put forth to them, this is Jesus uh, speaking or teaching the parable, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tears among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tears also appeared. Verse 27, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tears? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and, and gather them up? But he said, no, while, uh, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the parable, verse 24 to verse 30. Jesus talking about a story uh, of a man that goes out and sows good seed in his field. And whenever you sow good seed in your field, you expect a good harvest. But then in the story, Jesus tells of, of another individual coming into the equation. This is the, identified as the enemy, and he sows something else. He sows tares. And then both start growing up, but uh, in the story we are told that, that the final account has to wait. We're not to uproot anything yet. We are to wait until the time of the harvest and everything will be revealed. Well, at the end of the day, the disciples of Jesus, they come to Jesus and they ask him, what is the meaning of this parable? Now let's read together what the parable means. And we can stay in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 13, but we just drop down to verse 36. Okay. So verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is who? The Son of Man. Now, remember yesterday that we talked, or not yesterday, but uh, Tuesday, uh, we talked about 
the, uh, no, Monday rather, I'm getting a little bit confused here, it's Wednesday today, Monday, we talked about the Son of Man. It is an expression taken from the book of Daniel, the prophetic book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, remember we looked at those, that incredible prophecy with those four beasts coming up out of the sea, and then the Son of Man was represented to us. And in the gospel, Jesus often uses this phrase to refer to himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so what he's actually saying here is, I have sowed the good seed. And you know, when you begin reading the Bible and you open up the Bible for the very first time and you go to the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, and the very first chapter, chapter one, and you read through Genesis chapter one, what do you read about? You read about the creation of the world. And every day something was created, God stood back and he says, it was good. It was good. And this is a phrase that goes through the first chapter. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then on the sixth day, God creates the first human being and, 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 and Adam is created and then Eve is created. And then he steps back and he says something slightly different. He says, it is very good. So, so from the beginning, everything was good. The son of man has sowed good seed into this world. He's created the world very good. But there's a war of thrones. There's a great controversy that has broken out. And as he continues to identify the characters within this parable, listen to what he says. We're now in verse 38. He says, the field is the world. So this changes our perspective. We're not just talking here about a nice little story about someone that goes out to sow seed and, and then someone else comes and sows different seed. No, this is a, a, an illustrative story that reveals the great controversy between good and evil. This is a story that, that involves every single one of us because as we make our way through this life, as we journey through this world, we are actually walking through that field that is described in the parable. And, in, and as we walk through life, we see, we see the good and, and, and we see the evil. We see the wheat, we see the tares. Now listen to what Jesus says as he continues to, um, to, to describe the meaning of the parable. Verse 38, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now listen to this. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. So Jesus has now identified the, 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 the different elements within this parable. And suddenly we see that we're all involved because either we are sons of the kingdom of God or we are sons of the enemy. Either we have made a choice to, to, to identify ourselves with Jesus and to be on the side of God's kingdom, or we are on the side of the enemy's kingdom. And someone is sowing. The son of man is sowing, but the enemy is also sowing. And think about this. Jesus is sowing into your life his promises. When you read the Bible, do you know that you're actually allowing Jesus, the Son of Man, to sow his promises into your life? And when the Word of God enters into your life, it will produce fruit, amen? It will make you grow spiritually. But if you, um, if you uh, make yourself available to the enemy, he will also sow into your life. He will sow lies into your life, lies about the existence of God, lies about what consists of happiness in this life, lies about where you should be going and what you should be doing. And so all of us make decisions every single day. Who do we allow to sow into our lives? 
Does Jesus sow into our lives, the Son of Man, or is it the devil that is sowing into our life? And you know what? Whatever we allow to sow into our lives, eventually that will produce a harvest. And so, and so the sons of the kingdom are growing, the sons of the enemy are growing eventually to the time of the harvest. Now, Jesus identified for us right here what the time of the harvest is all about. Verse 39, he says, the harvest is the end of the age or the end of the world. Now, this is quite fascinating because if you compare this to the book of Revelation and the prophecies we find in the book of Revelation, you will actually find out that that's exactly what the book of Revelation teaches, that there will be a final harvest when Jesus comes back. But just before he comes back, there will be two, there will actually be two harvests. <laughs> there will be the harvest of God's people and there will be the harvest of the enemy's people. Take notice of this, Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. The Bible says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here we have a description of those that, that belong to the sons of the kingdom, and, and they keep the commandments of God. Do you know what happens right after this verse? This is Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Well, right after the description here, um, uh, the very next verses and leading into verse 14, the Bible says, Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like who? The Son of Man. There we have the expression again, Jesus himself, having on his head a what? A golden crown, and in his hand a? sharp sickle. Jesus is coming back. And it's fascinating because as it describes the second coming of Jesus, he is coming not as a, a, a baby in a manger, but he's coming as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in his hand is a sharp sickle. Now, what do you do with a sharp sickle? Well, with a sharp sickle, you you harvest, you harvest, you got it. So the imagery here is intentional. In the book of Matthew, chapter 13, the parable tells us there will be a harvest in the end of time, a harvest of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one. In the book of Revelation, we are told that those that keep the commandments of God will be harvested in the end of time by Jesus himself as he's coming to take them home. This will be a glorious moment as he comes in the sky and he is the ultimate king, the very, um, the, the, the very owner of the universe has now returned to take us home. And so with this in mind, we're going to look together at the law of God, because if, if, if we understand Revelation correctly and we understand these parables correctly, then it becomes very important for us to be filled with God's law, for his law to be written in our hearts and in our minds, to be part of those people that are described in Revelation 14 as keeping the commandments of God. Those that are described as the, the woman, the bride of Christ in Revelation 12, that keep the commandments of God. And those that are described in the parable of, 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 of Matthew 13 as the sons of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, one last thing before we really dive into our study of God's law. If you go back to Matthew chapter 13, I want you to take notice of what it actually says about those that will, be, that, those that will follow the enemy. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 and you look at the description there in verse 41, look at this. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and listen, and those who practice lawlessness, those who practice 
lawlessness. So those that end up being lost when Jesus comes, those that end up being on the wrong side when Jesus comes, the Bible says they practice what? Lawlessness. Well, what is, what is the, what is the uh, contrast of practicing lawlessness? That would be practicing the law, right? And that's exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. Those that are filled with the commandments of God. Well, let's then look at what is the law of God? What are the Ten Commandments of God? Well, first of all, the law is like a mirror. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul writes it and describes it this way. He says, I would not have known sin except through the what? Through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So if we didn't have the law of God, if we didn't have the Ten Commandments of God, we would not at all know what sin is. We know what sin is because we are able to look into the mirror of the law. And the mirror of the law reveals our spiritual condition. You know, and it's not very pretty, by the way. <laughs> When you look into the law of God, you realize you're a sinner. You realize you're in need of God's grace and his mercy. And so what the law of God does is it shows us our need so that we can then turn to a savior, to Jesus Christ. Amen. It is the law that, that reveals that we must have help from outside of us. There's nothing within us that can make us better people. We need an intervention from Christ himself. And the law reveals that, our need for a savior. But then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, as we read about this covenantal relationship with God, the Bible says something else about the law of God. Listen to this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their what? Hearts and into their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So on one side, and you can think of it a little bit like this, the law of God in one way is outside of us. It's like that mirror and you look into the mirror and it reveals your spiritual condition. But then when you turn to God and you turn to Christ, God does something with that law that is first outside of you in this covenantal relationship. He writes that law in your heart. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that beautiful that, that God takes his law and, and, he, and at one point of time in, in the Old Testament, he wrote it on stone, but in this new covenant, in this new relationship, where does he want to write it? In your heart, in your mind. And then he says, uh, your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And what an incredible promise that is. If you have a past that you're not particularly proud of, you can be sure that when you come to Christ that you can be cleansed and forgiven and that God will no longer remember your past but will give you a new beginning, amen? A new start. And so let us look together now uh, at these commandments that are found in the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 20 and we're going to discover some very interesting things. Because the law of God or the commandments of God are to be very, uh, have to have a very special place among God's people in the end of time. But in order for God's law to have a special place in the experience of God's people in the end of time, we must first understand them correctly to be able to, to, to receive them into our hearts and into our lives. So we turn to the book of Exodus, and we'll have some of these scriptures on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bible. This is the second book in the Bible, the story of Exodus. 
and you find the Ten Commandments right there in chapter 20. They were first given to the uh, Hebrew people when they came out of slavery, out of bondage, out of Egypt. And when they came into the wilderness, God gave them the Ten Commandments. Now, we begin here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And I want you to take notice of the introduction uh, of the Ten Commandments here. The Bible says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And many times it's, it's easy to skip those two verses and to dive right into verse 3, which then uh, uh, reveals the first commandment. But I think there's something important in this introduction. Because what God says here is he says, I am the Lord your God. God identifies himself with his people. And then he reminds his people that he is the one that took them out of bondage, that led them out of Egypt. Well, you might be here today and say, well, but yeah, that, that was fine for the people in the past that were in Egypt, but I've never been in Egypt, so, so this is not really particularly speaking to my experience. But, but remember that whatever happened to God's people in the past was a type, a typology of what would happen to God's people at later times. And it's very interesting to note that though we have not been in literal Egypt, and though we have not been literal slaves under a foreign power, we have all been in the bondage of sin. Are you with me? We have all been under the slavery of sin. And so Egypt is a picture of that bondage of sin. And what God is basically saying, not only to the Hebrews of the past, but to God's people today, is he's saying, I am your God, and I'm going to bring you out of your bondage. Amen? So before even the first commandment is given, God gives us the assurance that he is going to lead us out of the bondage of sin. He has the power to set us free. Now, let us just remind ourselves for a moment. How did God deliver his ancient people out of Egypt? Well, we've been actually through this in an earlier presentation. You will remember that God instituted what we call the Passover. And uh, what took place is uh, uh, through Moses, uh, God performed these miracles in Egypt and he, and he poured upon Egypt the plagues in order to subdue Pharaoh's heart so that he would let the people go and that they could uh, leave Egypt. Well, it was a very difficult thing because Pharaoh, he would harden his heart every time. But then when you came to the very 10th plague, something else took place. God said to his people, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to select a lamb without blemish, a, a lamb that is not sick, that is not cripple, a perfect lamb. I want you to take that lamb on the 10th day of the first Jewish month, because here the Jewish month was instituted for them. And, and God said, from now on, this is going to be your first month. And you select that lamb on the 10th day and you slay the lamb on the 14th day. And that lamb, the blood of the lamb was to be taken and to be put on the doorpost of their homes so that when the angel of destruction moved through the land, which was the 10th plague, and took the, and, 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 and took the firstborn of every Egyptian, the homes that had the blood on the doorpost were protected and the angel would pass over those homes. That's why we refer to it as the Passover feast. Now, now this is all again typology because Jesus died on Passover. He was crucified on the 14th day of the first Jewish month. And so the lamb that delivered God's people out of Egypt is now Jesus that delivers our, us out of the bondage of sin. 
So there's a lot going on here when we are looking here in Exodus chapter 20. And God is reminding us today that we have been set free from our Egypt. We have been set free from our bondage. And just like God uh, put, let uh, the literal Hebrews uh, set them free from literal Egypt through a literal lamb, so Christ has set us free through his very death on the cross. And we can be sure that that freedom has been purchased for each and every one of us. And in the light of this, in the light of what Christ has done for us, we are now given these 10 commandments. But what I want to do tonight, as we look at these 10 commandments, I want to look at them from the perspective of a promise. Okay, a what everyone? A promise. Now, God is not just saying, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. What he's actually saying here is he's giving us a promise of a better life that he wants for every single one of us. Now, take notice how this unfolds here in Exodus chapter 20. The first commandment is written there right in verse 3. And the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Now, now think about this. If the law is like a mirror and you look into that mirror and it reveals your need for Christ, we can all look into the mirror of the first commandment and we all recognize that we have other things at times in our life that we have placed um, and, and, and that have become more important for us than God. In other words, uh, these, these um, uh, gods that we, that we create um, can be a, a variety of things, can be so many different things. Anything that we've placed before God in our lives, God with a capital G. Now, now, once we see our sinfulness by looking into the mirror of the law, we turn to God, and what does God do? He gives us a promise. He says, I'm going to write my commandments in your heart. And when God writes his commandments in, in, in our hearts, this very commandment that first condemned us and revealed our sin now becomes a promise. And what is then the promise that God gives us in the first commandment? In that commandment, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, the promise of God is, I will be everything to you. You don't need any other gods in your life. Can you say amen? You don't need any other gods. I shall be everything for you. As a matter of fact, there's this amazing parable that you might remember in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where Jesus says the following, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So Jesus tells this parable about a man that finds a treasure and he realizes that the treasure is of more value than everything he owns. And so he sells everything that he has to purchase the field to obtain the treasure. And think about this. If the gospel is the treasure, then the gospel is the most valuable thing that you can find. And when you find it, my friends, when you realize what Christ has done for you, then you will not want any other gods in this world because Christ will become the most valuable thing in your existence. Amen? And that's really the promise of the first commandment or the first promise. God says, you, shall, you don't need any other gods. I will be everything for you. Now take notice of the second commandment or second promise that we are given in Exodus chapter 20. And you're going to discover something else very interesting tonight. And that is that the commandments or the promises, they build one upon the other. It's like God is leading us into an experience through these 10 promises, through these 10 commandments. The second commandment is in verse four to six. 
And the Bible says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And the essence of the second commandment is not to bow down or serve images. Now think about this. You, you, uh, you know, th th this, this is many times a commandment that we've kind of like put in the past. We kind of think to ourselves, yeah, they had problems with that before because, you know, they carved out literal images and they, they would carve them out of stone and wood and gold and silver and, and they would actually bow down to them. And there are actually stories in the Bible of, of, of um, idolatry where they would set up these idols and, and worship them and, and God through his prophets would speak against that. And sometimes it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting the way the prophets would speak against idolatry. At one point of time, there's a prophet by the name of Isaiah and he describes a man going into the forest and he says, a man went into the forest, he cut down a tree, he, he, he measured it out, he cut it in half, and one half he used to, 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 to create this idol, and with the other half, he actually, you know, uh, kept himself warm, he burnt the wood, and he made his, he cooked his meals and everything, and, and, and as Isaiah portrays this, you almost get this idea that there's just this one question that needs to be asked, and that is, how do you know that you didn't burn the wrong half, right? You could have burnt your God, so, so the prophets are showing the, uh, the futility of idol worship. It makes no sense. And, and, and for us, many times in our modern day today, we, we, we think also this makes no sense. And so we easily could just say, well, the second commandment, I can just check that one off because I, I, I don't have carved images in my home. But there's actually something more to this commandment. Because not, not just is it talking about carved images out of wood and stone and gold and silver, it's also carving a picture of God that is unreal. And you can carve that right here in your mind. In other words, when we look into the mirror of the second commandment, we are actually all at, at some point in our lives guilty of this because we have carved a false understanding of who God is. But then when we turn to God, and we come in repentance to God, then that commandment that first condemned us becomes then actually a promise when God writes it in our hearts. And what is it that actually God is saying in the second commandment? He's saying to us simply this. He's saying, you don't need to wonder what I'm like. I will reveal myself to you. You don't have to carve out any, any, any uh, image in your mind or, or in any material. You don't have to wonder what I'm like. I actually reveal myself to you. And isn't this exactly what God's done in his word? From Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, all the way to the book of Revelation and the very last chapter, chapter 22, the Bible in its history, in its poetry, in its parables, in its prophecy, in its history, and all that we have that we can read in the scriptures, it is a revelation of the character of God. Amen? We see it all the way through. And so God, when he gives the Ten Commandments, or rather, when he gives the 10 promises, he gives promise number one, and he says, you know what? You don't have to have any other gods before me. I'll be everything to you. It's like the, a husband saying to the wife that he loves, I'm going to be everything to you. You don't need anyone else. Amen? And then in the second commandment, the second promise, he says, and guess what? You don't have to carve in your mind or anywhere else uh, an image of me. I will actually reveal myself to you. I'll tell you what I'm like. Isn't it amazing? 
It's beautiful. The Ten Commandments or the Ten Promises are God's very revelation of who He is. Now let's move on to the third one. The third commandment is written here in Exodus chapter 20, and we're now down in verse 7. And verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So uh, many times we've kind of looked at this commandment in a very shallow way. And we kind of think like, okay, it's, it has to do with how I pronounce the name of God. Actually, it goes a lot deeper than that. When you study the scriptures and you study in particularly the name of God, you will find out very quickly that the name of God is synonymous with the character of God. There's this amazing story about Moses, and uh, it's actually when he received the Ten Commandments. Uh, shortly after that, he said to God, he says, God, can't, can't you just show me your glory? I want to see your glory, God. And then God says to Moses, okay, you come up in the cleft, of, and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and, 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 and in many ways, God, you know, he, he, um, he, he couldn't reveal his full glory to Moses because Moses would die. But, but God did reveal uh, some of his glory to Moses up there on the mountain. But guess what he said to Moses? He says, I will reveal my glory to you. I will reveal my name to you. And he says specifically, I will reveal my name. And then when, when, when God passed by Moses there on the mountain and revealed his glory or revealed his name, guess what he did? He pronounced his character. He said, this is what I'm like. And if you, if you study the Bible through and through, you will find that the name of God is the very character of God. So what does it mean when the Bible says in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain? Actually, what God is saying is don't misrepresent the character of God. Don't misrepresent it. And, and, and if we look at the law from its first function, if the law is like a mirror revealing our sin, we all look into that commandment and we have all misrepresented the character of God. But when we turn to Christ and we allow that commandment to become a promise and God writes that, that promise in our lives, then God is saying, you know what? I am going to shine in you with my glory. I'm going to reveal my character through your life and you are no longer going to misrepresent me, but you are going to represent me, amen? And so God is saying in his commandments, in his promises, promise number one, you, you don't need any other gods. I'll be everything for you. Promise number two, you don't have to wonder what I'm like. I will reveal myself to you. And promise number three, you're no longer going to misrepresent my name or my character. I will represent myself in you if you allow the Holy Spirit to fill your life. Amen? Let's look at the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read right there from verse 8 to 11. And the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gate. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The fourth commandment is regarding God's Sabbath. Now, we are living in a very restless society. We're living in a society where everything is 24-7, seven days a week, you know, no rest for the, for, for, for the soul. Everything is just continually going on. But in the midst of this hectic world that we live in, God has given us a commandment or rather a promise. And in his promise, he says, you know what? I want to spend time with you. 
I want to spend time with you. You know, in this busy life, I want you to come aside and I want you to set aside a special time that I have set aside, God says, and I want to spend that time with you. And this is what the Sabbath commandment is all about. God spending time with his people. As a matter of fact, the Sabbath commandment goes all the way back to creation. And you can read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the world in six days, but then as you move into chapter 2 and the description there in the first verses of chapter 2, it says God, when, he came to the, when it came to the seventh day, he says he sanctified that day. He hallowed that day. He set it aside for a special purpose, and it was for communion with man. So that every week, once a week, on that seventh day, we would be reminded that God is our creator and that he created us and that he wants to spend time with us. Do you notice that the most valuable thing that you can give to someone you love is what? It's time. Because when you give your time to someone, do you know that in essence you're giving your life to someone because your life is made up of a specific amount of time. And so you give your time, you're giving your life, and there's, there's nothing, nothing more that you can give. It's quite fascinating, actually. Have you ever thought about this, that, that the first thing that God sanctified, and the word sanctified means to set aside something for special use. The first thing that God sanctified, according to the Bible, was the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath deals with time. It's the seventh day. Now, in many religions today, there is either a sanctified object or a sanctified place. Now, think about, for example, Islam. In the Islamic religion, you will have a sanctified place. It is actually the, the city of Mecca. And if you're a good Muslim, you will try once in a lifetime to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, to that holy place. Well, in uh, religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, you will have many sacred objects. As a matter of fact, some years ago, I was on a speaking tour in India. I was there for a whole month, uh, preaching in many different places. And I was in the capital of India, in New Delhi. And um, I had a little bit of extra time. And so we were doing a little bit of sightseeing. And uh, my wife and I, we got into a taxi. And I don't know anyone being to New Delhi. The roads, it's, it's not like Sutherland, okay? It's not like, it's not like here in the U.S. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. Everyone is, you, you wonder if, if they're supposed to just drive on one side of the road if it just, or if they can just drive on both sides of the road. And, and, and there are all this traffic coming from all these directions. There's just people everywhere. And we're in this taxi and we're making our way through these chaotic little uh, uh, streets and towns. Um, and, and I said to the taxi driver, I said, how, do you, how, do you, how, how can you do this for a living? And he said, yeah, but I have some protection, you know. I said, yeah, I hope you do. And then he said, yeah, and he pointed to this little object that was hanging from his rear mirror. And he said, That's, that, that protects me. And I thought to myself, well, I'm praying to someone else for protection. <laughs> But he had this object that had to be in his car for him to feel that he was protected. Now, here it is. You have all these religions, right? In certain religions, it's a, it's a sacred object, but you need to have that object. In another religion, it's a sacred place, and you need to go to that place. But God, in the beginning, did not sanctify an object. He did not sanctify a place. He sanctifies time. Why on earth would God sanctify time? Well, it's very simple, my friends. Time is not something that you possess. It's not something you can pursue. It's not something you can grab. It's not something that you can have. It's not something that you can find in a certain uh, destination of the world. 
time simply comes to every single one of us right if uh, think about it this way if every seventh day is that special day of the lord if if we could not leave this room the sabbath would eventually come to us right because time comes to us god in other words is saying i take the initiative in this friendship I take the initiative in this relationship. I take the first step in this covenantal oneness that I want with you. And I show this by spending time with you. You don't need an object and you don't need to go to a place. I'll come to you. Amen. A God that is filled with love and that wants to spend that Sabbath with us from week to week. As a matter of fact, tomorrow evening, I hope you come back, we're going, to, we're going to look more into that amazing commandment of the Sabbath, and we're going to discover some amazing things connected with prophecy, uh, so, so we'll look more at that tomorrow evening. But take notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says the following, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the what? The first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now what Jesus say, is saying is simply this, when you love God, you will fulfill the first four commandments because he will become everything to you and he will reveal himself to you and you will represent him and you will spend time with him. That's loving God, amen? And, and the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, well, then you will fulfill the latter six commandments. Because loving your neighbor as yourself is also loving your parents. It's not taking the life of someone else. It's not committing adultery. It's not stealing. It's not bearing false witness and it's not coveting. So, so basically what God is saying here is, is love God and love your neighbor. And when you do this, then all the commandments basically hang on these two commandments. Isn't that amazing? And this is the experience that God wants to give to his people in the end of time as they're awaiting the second coming of Christ. Well, let's, let's continue and look a little bit more at these latter six commandments, because again, this is, there's an incredible progression in these 10 promises, in these 10 commandments. And so in, we're back here in uh, Exodus chapter 20, and we're right there in verse 12, and listen to what it says. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And so we come to the fifth commandment, and now we move. There's this amazing transition. We're moving from our relationship with God to our relationship with those that are very near to us. And I think the fifth commandment, though it talks about this relationship between parents and, and children, I think it can also be applied to, to relationships that are very close, whether it's brother or sister or, or, or uncle or aunt, or those that are very close to you, your closest friends. Isn't it interesting that a love to God will result in a love to those that are close to us? And so there's, there's a beautiful progression where God wants to do a work in our midst. But guess what? It's not just a love that is shown to those that are closest to us, but it's also a love that is shown to those that are around us in society. As a matter of fact, when you look at the very next three commandments that are mentioned there, short commandments that are listed one after the other, the, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, and the eighth commandment, we read them in verse 13, 14, and 15 of Exodus chapter 20. It says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. 
These commandments deal with, our, with, with, with both, both, both of those close relationships, but also relationships elsewise in society. Now, isn't it interesting that when you look at these commandments, it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's very easy to look at them like a checklist. You know, and we look at them and we say, okay, I'm going to do this. I want to keep the commandments. And so I look at the commandments and I say, okay, I'm doing pretty good on that one. I'm doing pretty good on that one. And, and not so good on that one. And it's very easy for us to, to, to treat the Ten Commandments kind of like a checklist. And, and when it comes to the Sixth Commandment, uh, most people are like, okay, I don't know about all the rest of them, but at least that one I could check off. <laughs> I've never killed someone, so good for you. So, so you can check off that commandment, right? But once Jesus comes into the picture, he actually explains something about that Sixth Commandment that suddenly gives it a little bit of a different light. I want you to take notice of this now. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gets up on that, on that mountain and he preaches that famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the commandments and he quotes the commandments and then he, he actually explains what the commandment entails and listen to what he says about that sixth commandment. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now suddenly, we, may, we, we might not be able to check off that commandment because we've all had this anger in our hearts. So, so again, when you look into the law as the mirror, remember, and you look into that mirror, it condemns us. It reveals that we are in need of a savior. And, and even the commandment that I thought that I kept, that I didn't take any one physical life, suddenly I see that I'm guilty of that one too because there's been anger in my heart. But here comes the good news. When you turn to Christ and you accept Jesus in your heart and you enter into that covenantal relationship, what happens is that God takes that commandment that was first, that was first revealing your sin and now he writes it in your heart and it becomes a promise. And what is the promise then of the sixth commandment? Well, very simple, my friends. The, the, the promise of the sixth commandment is God saying, you shall no longer kill or murder. You, I, I can even deal with that anger in your heart. I can give you victory. I can give you strength. I can help you to overcome these obstacles of that bitterness that you feel towards other people. There is victory, my friends, through Christ. Amen? There's also victory over uh, the, the, the seventh commandment, which deals with uh, adultery. Jesus says again here in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, we all stand guilty before God. Because it's not just about the act of murder. It's not just about the act of adultery. And it's not just about the act of stealing. It's about the act that takes place in the mind, the very thoughts. That, that's where the great controversy is raging. You know, the War of Thrones is actually a war that starts right here. It's in your mind. It's where your allegiance belongs. But right here, my friends, are also where the promises can be established. I want to share with you one of my favorite verses when it comes to God's power and strength in our lives. You might want to jot this promise down because this is incredible. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. Listen to what it says. This is dynamite power. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we, we walk with a fallen nature. We walk, with, we walk in, this, in this body that is so easily and prone to sin and prone to be led astray. We walk in the flesh. But then it says, but we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity, listen to this, to the obedience of Christ. Amen? That's victory, my friends. We can go through life and we can say, you know what? When we are faced with temptations, when we are bombarded with, 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 the, with the very realities of this world that are seeking to draw us away from the kingdom of God, we can claim this promise and we can say, God, you said in your word that, that through Christ, even these, the, 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 these temptations that are seeking to, to bring me down, that, you, that, you can gain, that I can gain the victory over them through your power and that you can pull them down uh, and everything it exalts itself against you and so when we look at each of these commandments each of them my friends is also a promise and god is saying i will give you the power to honor your parents i will give you the power to honor those that are close to you i will also give you the power uh, not to kill and not just that you don't take the physical life of someone i will give you the power to overcome anger and bitterness i will give you the power not just not to commit the actual act of adultery i will give you the power to not lust after that person i can give you the strength to overcome god is saying we can have strength to not just refrain from stealing objects, but we can have the strength to actually overcome that, 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 that longing to have something that is not ours. God wants us to be content with his word and with that great treasure of the gospel, amen? And so there's this beautiful progression of these promises. And we now come to the very ninth commandment, which is revealed right here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. And the Bible says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now listen to what Jesus says about this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his what? His mouth speaks. Now listen, if the commandments are a progression, if the promises of God are a progression, then look at this. Then first four commandments are dealing with our relationship with God, and then the latter six, our relationship with others around us, our neighbor. And as God is working out the principle of love and his promises in our heart, then when our heart is changed, guess what? Our words will be changed also. Because the Bible tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, so we can sometimes think, you know, ah, I really need to start, you know, working on, 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 on telling the truth. I don't want to lie anymore. I don't want to bear a false witness. And sometimes we become so focused on what we say, but, but rather, let us rather be focused on God changing the heart. Because once the heart is changed, well, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the mouth will speak God's truth. Amen. So God wants to do a work in us that we cannot do for ourselves. And so we come to the last commandment. The last promise. Take notice of this in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. Now, what is the essence of covetousness? The essence of covetousness is wanting something that is not yours, right? Now, think about this. When God becomes everything for you, when God becomes that treasure that you have now discovered, when the gospel and Christ are now seen for the value that they actually are, and you possess that, and God has become friends with you, and you are in this covenantal relationship, then guess what? God is saying to you, you know what? When you have that experience, 
you won't covet anything because I'm everything for you. And so the 10th promise actually brings us right back to the first promise. What was the first promise? God says, you shall, not have, you shall not have any gods before me. I will be everything for you. And he closes the 10 promises of the 10 commandments in the very same way. He says, you won't covet anything because you have found the treasure. You found the gospel. You found me. So what a, what a beautiful experience. And this whole experience, my friends, is to set us free. You know, I've sometimes heard people say, you know, oh, the Ten Commandments, you know, the Ten Commandments are not part of the covenant anymore, and they belong to the Old Testament, we don't need to keep them anymore, but do you know what, and some people even say the Ten Commandments, they're just leading us into bondage, it's slavery, it's telling us what we can't do, Christ has set us free, well, not, not quite, my friends, Christ has set us free, there's no doubt about that, but he has set us th free through the Ten Promises, the Ten Commandments, that's the way that he sets us free because he writes in our lives his very character, and he sets us free from the bondage of sin. Amen? The Ten Commandments are not done away with. As a matter of fact, you read throughout the New Testament, the book of Acts, and, and all the letters of Rome, uh, all the letters of Paul, and then you get to the book of Revelation, and again and again and again, you encounter God's people as keeping the commandments of God, because the commandments, they're not burdensome, they are promises that God has given in our life. And who wouldn't want such a promise? Who wouldn't want to love God with all their heart, mind, and soul? Who wouldn't want to love their neighbor as themselves? This is the very essence of Christianity. Amen? And it's revealed in these amazing promises, in these Ten Commandments. Again, it's a progression. We start that we're right there in bondage in Egypt, our bondage of sin. Then we're led out of bondage through Christ. And he says in commandment number one, I will be everything for you. In commandment or promise number two, he says, I will reveal myself to you. In promise number three, he says, you will represent me. You won't take my name in vain. Promise number four, I will spend time with you. Promise number five, I will restore your relationships. Promise number six, seven, and eight, you will no longer kill. You will no longer commit adultery. You will no longer steal. You belong now to me. And then promise number nine, you will speak truth because I have transformed your heart. And then finally, commandment and promise number 10, you won't want anything else because I'll be everything for you. Amen? It's good news. I hope, I hope you're ex just as excited as I am tonight about God's commandments, God's law, God's promises. Now, we're, we're about to wrap up, okay? We're about to finish, but I want to show you something uh, very fascinating, uh, something that, that God's Spirit showed me. And I believe that, that when you, either you're, you're on a journey coming out of the bondage of sin, experiencing God's promises of God's commandments, or you're on your opposite direction and you're actually on your way into the bondage of Egypt, into the, the slavery of sin. And guess what? The enemy of souls in this war of thrones, the enemy of souls, Lucifer, that fallen angel, the devil, the dragon, Satan himself, guess what? He is breaking every single commandment, but he's breaking them in reverse order. He started with breaking the 10th commandment and he's working his way backwards. In other words, he's working his way into bondage instead of leading people out of bondage. Take notice of this. What was the first thing in this great war of thrones what was this first thing in this battle between good and evil that Lucifer did? Well, he coveted the position of God. We are told that he looked at God and he said, I want to be like the Most High. So he broke the 10th commandment. And then what was the result of him coveting the position of God? Well, he started spreading lies about the character of God. 
He started spreading lies amongst the other angels. How, do you really think God is that good? Do you really think God is a God of love? Do you really think God's commandments should be kept? And so he's spreading lies about the character of God, and he's breaking the ninth commandment. And then, when you look at this battle between good and evil that is described there in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, it says that he seeks, that he seeks to steal the very position of God. There's war in heaven, and he seeks to take it by force. He breaks the eighth commandment. And in many ways, you could say that, that he breaks his relationship with God like a spiritual divorce, breaking the seventh commandment. He makes war with Christ and his angels and seeks to take their very life to murder them. He breaks commandment number six. Then he's cast out of heaven, but his rage is now against the family that is made in the image of God. And so he is breaking commandment number five. Then he attacks the holy time of God revealed in the Sabbath and breaks commandment number four. He attacks the very character and name of God by misrepresenting him in the world, and he breaks commandment number three. Then, and we're going to get to this in Bible prophecy, this is fascinating, but the book of Revelation reveals that in the end of time, that what the devil is going to do is he's going to create a new image of God for people to bow down to, and he breaks commandment number two. And then finally, what this all leads up to is that he makes himself God and breaks the first commandment. But guess what? There's good news. Because when he breaks the commandments in the reverse order, he by necessity has to take one more step. And where does he end up? In Egypt, in bondage. Either you're coming out of bondage or you're going into bondage. And my friends, when you study this book, and when you look at the great controversy between good and evil, when you look at the War of Thrones, the outcome is already known. The enemy will, will be led into bondage. In the end, he will be entrapped in his own sheen, and he will find out that by breaking the commandments, it didn't lead to a, to, to a greater liberty or greater freedom, but it led to being spiritually bound now by the very breaking of God's promises. But my friends, tonight, you don't have to be on that track. Tonight, you can say, together with the psalm writer in Psalms chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, you can say, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I don't know about you, but I want to be in that camp, amen? amen? That whatever you do may prosper in life because you delight in God's commandments, you delight in his promises. And may we be found among those that will allow God not just to write the commandments in stone, which he has already done in the past, but let us be among those today that will allow him to write the commandments in our hearts. And as we near the end of time, the Bible prophecy predicts that the dragon will be enraged against the people that are described as the woman, the bride of Christ, and they have the commandments of God. May you be on the winning side, amen? May we all be found with Christ as the end is coming. Well, let's pray together as we wrap up this evening together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the amazing uh, word that you have given to us in the Bible and the promises that are found therein. We want to thank you tonight for your law, for your commandments. Thank you, Lord, for every single one of them. Thank you for the promises that you have given to us. And we want to just express our love to you tonight and say we want to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. 
Help us to love you and to love our neighbor around us and to be filled with your spirit. We pray that you will lead us back tomorrow as we continue this series, War of Thrones. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.